grab a Bible and turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 1 through 9. Thanks for a sweet time of worship. All right, Exodus 34. And again, because we won't have the words on the screen, I really want everyone to be able to lay eyes on them. And so if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, I think we have a couple extras in the back. You're welcome to take that one home with you. Um, if you want to open your smartphone, turn to the text. I'm going to be referencing it a lot. I want to be able to see it. I'm going to show my work this morning. So turn with me to Exodus 34. We are five weeks in now, church, to our study through the second half of the book of Exodus. And I mentioned this a couple minutes ago, but I hope we're starting to pick up on a theme, a theme that is running pretty much through every passage, every sermon in this series. The theme of really this series has been, has been that God desires to be known, that God is a relational God who loves his people and wants to be known by his people. God is not some distant deity who wound up the universe, hit play, and then took a step back. God is a relational God, a God of covenants, a God who delights not only to know his people, but delights in his people knowing him. We've seen this in different ways in this series that, again, God relates to his people through covenants. Pastor Hunter shared that with us five weeks ago. We saw this when we looked at the tabernacle, how God desires to dwell with his people. And the whole idea behind the tabernacle was to foreshadow a permanent dwelling place with his people. We even saw this last week in our time on the word last week, how God's presence is relational and he communicates his presence through speaking. He wants to be known by his people. Well, this morning, we're going to see that theme that God desires to be known reach its fulfillment in these nine verses. Specifically in verses six and seven, God gives Moses perhaps the most profound and theologically significant statements about himself in the entire Bible, at least the entire Old Testament. Because in this text, God tells Moses, and by default, God tells us who he is. He tells us who he is. I mean, this is one of those passages about God that helps unlock everything else about the God of the Bible. It helps us unlock everything else about the scriptures. It's so important this morning that if we try to understand even Christianity without the truth revealed in this word this morning, it'd be like trying to understand the United States of America without knowing anything about the Declaration of Independence. Like we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain and unalienable rights. And among them are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. We as a country haven't always done a great or perfect job at living up to those ideals, but you can't understand the heartbeat of America, what we're about as a country without knowing something about those words. In the same way, think about, think about the Star Wars series for a moment. So not as important as America, but still pretty cool. In Star Wars, you can't really understand the whole point of this series without knowing that Darth Vader is, spoiler alert, Luke's father. Unless you know that key truth, everything else doesn't really make sense because the whole original trilogy is built around that main idea. Like that's what this passage is for us today. It's that foundational. It's that important because it's gonna show us an answer to one of the biggest and most common questions people have about the God of Christianity. How can the God of the Bible 
be a God of mercy while also being a God of justice? How can God be kind and loving while also punishing sin? How can God create the glory of heaven while also creating the horror of hell? We're going to see the answer to those questions in this passage. And we're going to see it through God's own description of himself. So here's my plan this morning, Coastal. We're going to read this text together. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to look at how both the mercy and the justice of God can not only coexist, but how they can come together to create really the greatest story ever told. And I just want to let you know where we're going at the outset of our time this morning. At the close of our time in the Word, I'm going to give you a chance if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ to do so this morning. I'm gonna lead you through that. And so if you're in here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, that's where we're going. You're gonna make a decision this morning. And no decision is a decision. If you are a Christian this morning, pray right now that God would bless the next few minutes and that he would bring people to that decision. And so let's read the word of God together. Exodus 34 verses one through nine, and then we'll pray. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaim the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Father, help us to approach your word with humility this morning because it is authoritative and we are not. It is without error, and we are full of error. And so, Lord, I pray that as a church, we would come to this word hungry, wanting to be fed by the living God of the universe. And I pray that just as you revealed yourself to Moses on the mountain, you would reveal yourself to us in this room. And that we would have a real encounter with you this morning. I pray that for this time. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. All right, let me get us caught up to speed. So last week, 
in Exodus 33, we saw that because of the idolatry of the golden calf in the last chapter, God was not going up to the promised land with his people. And we saw this last week. Moses intercedes, telling God, God, if you're not going with us to the promised land, we don't want to go. And so God relents, agreeing to go with his people. And in our opening verses of our passage this morning, we saw this. God invites Moses back up Mount Sinai to really what was going to function as kind of a vow renewal. Remember, the idolatry of the golden calf was perceived as adultery. And so what's happening here in chapter 34 is that God in his mercy is renewing his vows. He's renewing the covenant with his people. We see this beginning in verse 10, which is where we left off this morning. The rest of 34, God is going to renew the covenant with the Israelites and he lays out for them expectations of faithfulness and obedience and he lays out for them rewards of both the promised land and his presence. But before the covenant is renewed, we get this scene on the top of the mountain that we just read where God descends in a cloud and proclaims to Moses his name. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that this is actually the second time in Exodus where God reveals his name to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses sees this burning bush, God speaks to him out of the bush and he reveals his covenant name to Moses. The covenant name is Yahweh. Now, in our English Bibles, Yahweh is usually translated as the Lord. And it's done so in all caps with smaller letters. This name of the Lord appears over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And it's important because this is how God chose to make himself known to Israel, which was his chosen people. Before the giving of this name, he was simply Elohim, which means God. It's a general title. Now he gives them the name Yahweh. It's a relational title. Think about it if you're speaking about your spouse, Saying this person is my spouse is a general generic title of who they are, but if you talk about them as your beloved, there is an intimacy there. There's a relational aspect there. That's what I want us to see with Yahweh. Yahweh is relational. It's God's special name for his special people. Yahweh means I am who I am or I will be who I will be, which gets at the self-existent uncreated nature of God. But here in Exodus 34, we see the name Yahweh again, and this time it's expounded upon. God gives more detail, almost like God is preaching a sermon expositing on the nature of his name. And we can see from the setting of these first few verses that this exposition was a big deal. God tells Moses to make himself ready to cut two tablets of stone. This would have taken Moses all night and then come back up the mountain. And Moses, when you come back up the mountain, don't let livestock on the mountain or they could die. Come alone. Like this is how holy and special this moment was going to be when God reveals to Moses the fullness of his covenant name. And we'll see this fullness, this exposition of the name, this description of God, we're gonna see it over and over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. What we're about to read, we see repeated. We see it in Numbers 14, in Deuteronomy 5 and 7, Psalms 86, 103, 111, and 145, Nehemiah 9, 2 Chronicles 30, Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 32, Hosea 2, Joel 2, Micah 7, and Nahum 1. You, you get the point. It's everywhere. Like what we're about to read, we see all over the Bible. This name that God's going to reveal to Moses sets the expectation and the trajectory for who God is for his people. This is how he wants us to know him. And so with that context, let's read it again. This is who God is saying he is. Verse six, the Lord, there's the covenant name. 
passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there we have it. This church is who God is. Listen, there is nothing more important for you today than to know this God. Like we need to know God more than we need water and food and shelter. We need to know this God. And I know that we've, in gathering this size, we've got people in here with heartbreak and struggles and trials. Listen, more than you need relief or deliverance, more than you need anything, you need to know this God. We've got people in here this morning who are burdened and overcome by their own sin, like struggling with guilt and shame of your past. More than anything, if that's you this morning, you need to know the God who forgives iniquity. You need to know the God who forgives sin and not just in a one-time way, but forgives it forever. And I know there are Christians in the room that struggle with that. God, I keep sinning. God, you still forgive my sin even when I keep sinning. You need to know this God. In the same way, I know there are people in here this morning who have become calloused by their own sin. Man, there are people in here today who are not grieved by their own sin, who have gotten used to it, who are just banking on grace to just cover it. Once saved, always saved. If that's you, you need to know the God in fear and trembling who will by no means clear the guilty. Like this passage shows us God in the fullest expression of who he is. A God who is both merciful and just. A God who forgives sin, but by no means will clear the guilty. So let's take these one at a time and then we'll close by seeing how they fit together. Number one, in this text, we see it in your notes. We see the God of mercy. We see the God of mercy. In verse six and the first half of verse seven, we see several different characteristics of God, several different ways that God makes himself known to his people. Let's walk through them together real quickly. First, we see that God describes himself as both merciful and gracious. This is how he starts. This is what he wants Moses to know first and foremost. I am a God who is merciful and gracious. Merciful in that he withholds from us what we do deserve, so punishment for our sin, and gracious in that he gives us what we don't deserve, unmerited favor and acceptance. We see that God is slow to anger, which in the Hebrew, all first-year seminary students learn this. In the Hebrew, slow to anger means long of nose. Anyone in here with a longer nose start feeling real self-conscious. Long of nose, which picture a... Picture a bull, like snorting and huffing and puffing on the ground. A bull has a short nose. God has a long nose. What that means is that God does not have a short fuse. He has a long fuse. He is slow to anger. I want us to, to understand this for a moment. God's anger does not have a quick trigger finger. He's not penting it up, waiting to pour out his wrath. It takes a lot to stir up the anger of God, which is not the case for the mercy of God. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland put it like this. God's anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think the opposite. The divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build. It's not the case. Rather, divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. 
Here's what I want us to understand. God delights in showing mercy towards his people. He rejoices in being able to forgive our sin. That means that God sees you in your situation today and God cares for you. He has compassion on you in your situation right now. God doesn't need to be talked into showing you mercy. God delights in showing you mercy. That's what this text means. And third, we see that God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. So steadfast love here is literally covenant love, which means that God has a special type of love for his people. Now, don't get me wrong. We know, church, that God loves everyone, and all people are God's creation, but only the recipients of his covenant love are God's children. And for those children, God has reserved a special type of affection. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible doesn't tell us that everyone is God's child. The world tells us that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. In fact, the Bible tells us the opposite. John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we become children of God when we receive him, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And when that happens, we become children of God and recipients of this steadfast covenant love, this love that's abounding. And then finally, verse seven, we read that God is forgiving of iniquity and transgression and sin. So three different terms. These three different terms are designed to be all-encompassing in that for the recipient of God's covenant love, there's no iniquity, transgression, or sin that cannot be forgiven. So for the Christian in the room this morning, here's what that means. God knows the absolute worst of you and forgives the absolute worst of you. Like for the follower of Jesus, there's no sin that we can commit that God has not forgiven past, present, or future. I mean, God has seen everything. He's seen the stuff that no one sees. He's seen the, the selfish thoughts, the impure motives, the evil actions. God has seen it all, yet because of his character expressed in this passage, God has forgiven it all. He's poured out mercy over every sin, past, present, and future. And here's what I want us to see. God doesn't forgive our sin while gritting his teeth or rolling his eyes and thinking, okay, Colin, here we go again. No, God delights to forgive our sin because when he does so, he's being true to his character that he's revealed in this passage. When God forgives our sin, he's being true to who he says he is, merciful and gracious. That's who God is, and that's so good, church. It's the best news in the world. But hear me for a second. I want us to notice something. There is a common denominator in every single one of those incredible characteristics that we just covered, and it's this. Every single way that God reveals himself in this passage is in relation to our sin, I'll show us this. God relates to us on the basis of our sin. Think about it. He's merciful to us when we sin. He's gracious when we sin. He has covenant love for his people when we sin. He forgives our sins. So here's what that tells us. There's no understanding of God's mercy without first a right understanding of our sin. You can't have the doctrine of mercy without the doctrine of sin. Mercy without sin doesn't make sense. You can't be forgiving when there's nothing to forgive. You can't be slow to anger when there's no reason to be angry. So here's the cruel irony in this. You ready? The world around us, church, loves verse six. Loves verse six. 
And the world around us loves the first half of verse seven. We love these characteristics of God because they all sound so great, so sweet. We love to think of a a God full of mercy. We love to think of a God who forgives, but man, we don't like thinking about our own sin. No one likes thinking about their own sin. We don't want a God who judges sin. We want a God who tolerates. We want a God who gives tacit approval to everything we do, just bland acceptance of however we want to live our lives. The creed of this world, if the world were to write this passage, would sound something like this. The Lord, the Lord, the God who listens, the God who accepts, the God who never judges, the God who gets us. We want a God who gets us. So much so that there are people willing to pay $17.5 million to have an ad in the Super Bowl with that message. Some of you might remember it. There were a couple of commercials that ran in the Super Bowl by an organization called He Gets Us. And while the ads in and of themselves were different, the message behind them was the same. One of them said that Jesus didn't preach hate, Jesus washed feet. And in that particular commercial, it was just pictures of people washing the feet of those who were different from them with feel-good music playing in the background. Now, I can't speak to motive. Like, it's entirely possible that these commercials were well-intentioned and that the makers of them just want more and more people to become curious about the message of Jesus. But I will say this, intentional or not, the message of He Gets Us is that in your sin— Living however you want to live, doing whatever you want to do, Jesus gets you. Jesus is for you. And Coastal Church, that is not the gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. Not only is it an incomplete gospel, it's terrifyingly dangerous. Because now 100 million people have just been affirmed that everything in their lives is fine because Jesus gets them. Everything is fine because Jesus understands them and he's fine with whatever lifestyle choices they want to make. And don't get me wrong, Jesus does get you. He does relate to you. He can relate to your humanity. Jesus gets us in our suffering. He knows the pain of this world because he took it upon himself. But listen, Jesus does not get you in your sin. And that message, all it does is comfort the road to destruction, Because there's no mercy without sin, there's no forgiveness without repentance, and there's no gospel without first understanding that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And church, that's why the mercy of God is such good news. God's mercy is good news because we need it. Not because it sounds good or makes us feel good or looks good on t-shirts, it's because we desperately need his mercy. Like I need his mercy, you need his mercy. And that's what God is communicating to us in this passage. He pours out mercy for us that changes our lives. He poured out mercy that changed my life. And it frees us up to then pour out mercy to other people. God's mercy is supremely good for us because we need it. But the Bible doesn't stop there. Like if this passage stopped there, we'd be missing a picture of who God is. It keeps going. This is number two in your notes. We've seen the God of mercy. Number two, we see the God of justice. The God of justice. Look at verse seven again. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children 
to the third and fourth generation. So this God of mercy, this God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice. Now, before we unpack this, I want to address a theological question that might be coming up in some of your minds. Does God really punish children down to the third and fourth generation for the sin of their parents? So let's do some quick Bible study 101. Whenever we see a passage in the scriptures that seems confusing at first glance, we have to compare it to similar passages in the Bible that discuss the same thing. And when we do that in this case, we get some real clarity. So first Exodus 20 verse 5. I know we won't have it on the screen, so you can write it down. Exodus 20 verse 5. This is the second commandment. God is prohibiting the use of idols, and he says this. I'll read it real slowly. You shall not bow down to them, talking about the idols, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. There's the same language, but what I'm about to say, this next phrase of the passage is what's really helpful for us. Read it again. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So in other words, the children in mind here who are being punished are the children who continue in the sin and the wickedness of their parents. No one is getting punished for something they didn't do. Prophet Ezekiel confirms this. You can write this down too. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. 18, 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what are we seeing in our text today when the third and fourth generations are being disciplined for their sin? It's because they've continued in the same sin as their parents. In other words, if in the fourth generation, the Israelites constructed another golden calf, They would be punished for it just like their parents. All right, let's keep moving. Here's what I want us to see from this point. Because God is just, because he's the God of justice, he simply cannot overlook sin because he's just. This is part of his very nature. Remember, in this text, God is communicating to Moses, to his people, who he is. And he's a God, and his own declaration will by no means clear the guilty. He can't clear the guilty because if he did so, it would violate his holy character and go against the fact that he's perfectly just. And church, this is a good thing. Like, we appreciate justice. Imagine if there was a judge in our country today who was known for taking bribes or for consistently clearing the convicted or if we had a judge who didn't uphold the law of the land. But if we had a judge like that in our culture today, we would want that judge off the bench instantly because he's not just. And the Bible tells us God is just. Because of his justice, we can rest assured that the ultimate judge of the universe will one day bring to justice every wrong, every atrocity, every kind of evil under the sun. In Deuteronomy 32, God declared that justice is mine, and he meant it which means that in his perfect timing, the school shooters will be brought to justice. The abusers will be brought to justice. The doctors who are mutilating minors will be brought to justice. The abortion mills will be brought to justice. And get this, it's gonna get uncomfortable for a moment. It means that in your sin, you too will be brought to justice because God hates sin. See, 
I think we like the idea of justice when it's applied to the big picture evil of the world around us. But I think we're much slower to embrace the idea of justice when it's applied to the evil in our own hearts. I know that I am. But this is what the Bible says. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Romans 3.11 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. That means, church, that our default condition in this world is a condition of sin and rebellion against the God of justice. And remember, God can't overlook sin. His character demands that it be paid for. So here's what that means. Someone has to pay for your sin. God can't just not pay for it. It has to be paid for. And you can choose to pay for your own sin. If you do that, you can rest assured the punishment for your sin will be just. And because God is infinitely holy, the punishment for sin is infinite, which by definition means that it won't end. We have to understand this. The consequences of our sin are not based on the severity of the sin itself, but rather the importance of the one sinned against. Let me put it another way. Maybe this will help. Um, raise your hand if you have a sibling. If you have a sibling, all right, most hands. All right, I have a sibling. I have a little brother who lives in Washington, D.C. He's a contractor, uh, three and a half years younger than me. We have a great relationship. Imagine if I took my right hand and slapped my little brother across the face, just clocked him, like moved my hand maybe 12 inches, slapped him across the face, something I probably did 100 times when we were kids. Now, in that moment, there's the action, the slap. It's not good, but he's my brother. So in reality, what do you think the consequences of that slap would be? Probably not overwhelmingly severe. Like we have a good relationship and it, it probably wouldn't be good for our relationship, but he would get over it. I would move on. We'd be fine. Just a slap. Now, take it up a level. Imagine, and I say this with fear and trembling. Imagine if I slapped Pastor Sean, the senior pastor over all of Coastal Church, if I slapped Pastor Sean, I would lose my job. And rightly so. Everyone would say, amen. Yep, he's disqualified himself, can't be a pastor anymore. You can't do that if you're a pastor. Shouldn't do that if you're a Christian. But get this, Pastor Sean is a godly man. He's a humble man and he's a man of mercy. I bet Pastor Sean would forgive me. Probably still wouldn't have my job, rightly so, but he would forgive me. If I slapped Pastor Sean, I would be forgiven. He wouldn't press charges but it's a more serious thing than if I slapped my brother. Now, one more level. Imagine if I slapped a police officer. Same action, wrong action, different person. If I slapped a police officer, I would be handcuffed and taken in. Rightly so. You can't slap a police officer, you can't do that. And so again, same action, three different kinds of consequences. Now, one more level. Imagine if I slapped the President of the United States. If I did that, you would never see me again. Like I'd be in some basement of the Pentagon, never to be heard from again. Because you can't slap the president of the United States. But here's the thing, church, the action is the same. All I'm doing is taking my right hand and moving it at about six inches. Now, get this, I want us to see this idea. The punishment of our sin, the consequences of our sin are not based on the action, they're based upon the importance of the one sinned against. So listen, how much more important is the holy, holy, holy God of the universe? So when we sin one time against the God of the universe, the infinite God, we deserve infinite punishment. And that's just one sin. Like how many times have you sinned over the last 24 hours? 
How many times have I sinned over the last 24 hours? Our last 24 hours is enough to condemn us to an eternity in hell. Like we need to feel that this morning. And that's not because God is harsh. That's because God is just. He can't just overlook sin or he would violate his character. He will by no means clear the guilty. And so here's where we are. We've seen that God is both merciful and that God is just. That he forgives sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. So here's our final question. Million dollar question. How can both of these things be true? How can both be true? We're going to answer this question in point number three. You have it in your notes. The God of the gospel. God of the gospel. Look at chapter 34, verse 5. The first three words of this verse are going to foreshadow our answer this morning to this all-important question of how God can be both merciful and just without contradicting himself. Verse 5. The Lord descended. He descended. He came down. Remember the theme running all throughout this series. God desires to be known. He wants you to know him. But we've got to realize, in order for this to actually happen, God has to be the one who takes the initiative. God has to be the one who descends. In our sin, we certainly can't ascend to him. We can't go up to him. He's got to come down to us. And not only does God have to come down to us, but God has to find a way to reconcile our sin problem. If God wants to dwell with his people, which is the desire we've seen all throughout this series, it seems like he's got a problem. It seems like at face value, God has two options. Track with me here. Number one, if God wants to dwell with us, he can forego his mercy and uphold his justice. And in doing so, no one gets mercy and God loses out on the desire that he has to dwell with his people. So he can forego mercy and uphold justice. Or option number two, he can forego justice and uphold mercy. And in doing so, in showing us mercy, he breaks the purity of his holy character and he breaks his own law. For the record, this is what every other monotheistic religion does when their God shows mercy. When the God of Islam shows mercy, he violates his character and he breaks his own laws. The God of Islam shows mercy at the expense of justice. But listen, what if there was a third option? What if God could uphold his mercy, not at the expense of justice, but through justice? Like remember, our sin demands payment. It has to be paid for. But what if, church, God could pay for our sin himself? That's option number three. And so in his mercy, in all of his justice, God descended and he decided to pay for our sin himself. And the Apostle Paul explains how this works in some of the most precious words in the entire Bible. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I'm going to read it really slowly. I know we don't have it up on the screen. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifested, made known, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, 
He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is Paul saying? He's telling us that God upholds both his mercy and God upholds his justice through the offering of his son Jesus on the cross. Paul uses the word propitiation, which for us means sacrifice that appeases wrath. Like I want us to see this. On the cross, Jesus was that sacrifice. He paid for sin, which means that justice was served and wrath was appeased, which means that mercy is now accessible. And that mercy is now accessible for everyone who places their faith and their trust in Jesus. The Bible tells us that our God has paid the price for sin for us and he's done so while being perfectly merciful and perfectly just. He is the judge who has handed down a sentence and then gotten down off the bench to pay the penalty for that sentence himself. And he's done that because he loves us. Like may we never tire of that truth that God loves us and he's proven it by what he did through the person and work of Jesus. He is the God of the gospel and we repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel and receive Christ. We then experience both abundant life here on earth and eternal life with him in heaven forever. He is the God of the gospel and this is the greatest news in the world for you. It's the greatest news in the world for me. So here's how we're gonna close. I'm going to invite the band back up and we're going to close in singing, but I want to lay some application before you. Number one, if you are a Christian in this room, if you're a member or an attender of Coastal Church or checking out the church for the first time, but you're a follower of Jesus, here's your application. Look at verse eight. In verse eight, when Moses sees this picture of who God is, of his mercy and his justice combined, the text says he bows his head and he worships. Like when was the last time we just had a revelation of who God is and we bowed our heads and we worshiped? I don't know that there's necessarily something we have to do about this text. This text tells us, behold your God, Christian, the God who is merciful and just and the God who proved both his mercy and his justice at the cross. Now, if you want to go farther, you can. If God is a God of mercy, that means we should be people of mercy. So what does that mean for us? It means you can't receive God's mercy in your life while also withholding mercy from other people around you. Christians can't be people who withhold forgiveness. We don't have that right. If God has forgiven us much, we owe that forgiveness towards others. It also means that if God is a God of justice, and we know that he is, we should be people of justice, who care about justice, who fight for justice in the world. And that means we can, we can wage war against things like sex trafficking, Every single person in this room would say, yes, sex trafficking is bad. But guess what? Every time you watch internet pornography, you contribute to that industry. So Christians, how much do we care about justice? Because stats tell us that Christians watch pornography just as much as non-Christians. That cannot be for people who worship the God of justice. It means that we labor to care for the unborn. We're doing this baby bottle drive with CareNet right now. We care about the unborn. If we care about justice for the unborn, then we should fill up those bottles and bring them back because we want God to be honored and lives saved. So we worship God and we are people of mercy and justice. Now, if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, maybe you're here and you thought you were, but you've never heard of this God. You just thought God was a God who approves everyone, accepts everyone. Then here's my step for you. 
With all my heart, I urge you to place your faith and trust in the Jesus who reconciled both the mercy and the justice of God. He's your refuge. Remember, sin demands payment. So here's what that means. Every sin that has ever been committed will either be paid for at the cross or in eternity in hell. I know we don't like talking about hell, but that's the reality that the Bible shares with us. And so for you this morning, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, then my counsel to you is run out of Sodom and run to the mountains where the refuge of Jesus is. Like run to Jesus because there's gonna be a day where it's too late and you can't run anymore. There's gonna be a day where you stand before this God of justice and he will ask you, how are you paying for your sin? And if your answer is yourself, you will face infinite punishment. We love you. We don't want that to happen. We don't want that to be the case for your life. That's why we're here because we want more and more people to know about the good life-saving news of Jesus. So we don't do this all the time, but this morning I'm gonna give you a chance to trust in this Jesus. This Jesus who reconciled both the mercy and the justice of God. So let's pray. Let's pray together. First, I wanna pray for the Christian. Father, I thank you for these saints that you have assembled here at Coastal Church in Williamsburg. I thank you that week after week, we get to come together as a local church and open up the Bible and try to do what it says. And God, I thank you for the way that you revealed yourself to Moses. I pray that our reaction would be similar to one that Moses had, that we would just bow our heads and worship this morning. Because this gospel does not get old. This news doesn't get old, God, that you are merciful, that you delight in forgiving our sins, so much so that you made a way to do it without compromising your character. It's so awesome, God. And there's logic and ration behind it, Lord. But what's even more crazy is there's love behind it. You love us, God. You love us with a special covenant type of love because we are your children. And so, Father, I pray that our response would be worship today. And that if there are ways where we're not showing mercy, where we're not reflecting your justice, I pray that you'd convict us of those ways, that we would repent of those ways. And now for the one in this room who's not a follower of Jesus. We're praying for you right now. We don't want you to pay for your own sin. And so I'm gonna encourage you, if you wanna place your faith and trust in Jesus, if you want that refuge that the Bible offers us, you wanna avail yourself of the love and the mercy of God, I'm gonna encourage you to pray with me in a minute. And I want you to know this, the words of this prayer are not magic. The words of this prayer don't save you. It is not even formulaic. It's not designed to be. God saves us because God wants to save us, not because of anything that we do. The Bible tells us that we can believe in him and that we can trust in him. And so what I wanna encourage you to do is to pray with me and do just that. God, I come before you this morning aware now of my own sin and aware of your justice. And so I ask God that in your mercy, because of Jesus and who he is and what he did, I ask that you would forgive my sin. And I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he died on the cross for my sin. And I thank you that he rose again from the grave. I believe in him. I trust in him now. Cover over my sin, Christ. Welcome me into your family. 
create in me a new heart, remove from me my heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and help me to live for you and to be with you forever and ever and ever.